There are really two reasons for having a series of conversations like this here at Gateway. Reason number one is to help us to get real and to stay real about how difficult life is. You know, as you look out at the landscape of faith and church, of course, there are some different kinds of approaches. Somebody sent me a link this week and a question just reminding me about that. I can't remember the name of it, but that Baptist church that goes around and protests at funerals for servicemen. Conservatives often, those who approach their faith conservatively, and I tend to be uh, conservative, conservatives, those who approach their faith conservatively tend to be, sometimes as they approach faith, they tend to be almost like the behavior police. And they tend to seem like or maybe even feel like they are the ultimate purveyors of truth. And those who approach from a more a liberal perspective uh, can feel like or seem like that they are, that faith is for them a, a do-good society. And of course, following Christ is really both of those things, but there's truth in both perspectives, but more important than that, than either of those, is the recognition that we're fellow strugglers. We're fellow strugglers with one another, and we're fellow strugglers with those who are not here yet. And we have found a key to emotional health. Not because we're better, not because we're smarter, not because we're wiser, but because of grace. You know, I said a a few weeks ago, and I'll remind us again today, and if you were looking for a church with really, really good people, you've probably found the wrong place. Because this is a room full of hypocrites. We are people who say one thing and do another. But we've been welcomed in by grace. We're fellow strugglers. And that's a truth that we need to constantly keep before ourselves and remind ourselves. So our hearts stay soft toward the movement of God in us and around us. A second reason that we do a series like this is to remind ourselves that following Christ makes us more emotionally healthy. That's a truth that's sometimes forgotten about in our religion and in our attempt to connect with God. It makes us more emotionally healthy. Spiritual maturity and deeper connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done makes us more emotionally alive, more emotionally capable of managing and handling and being in healthy relationships. That's why at one point the Apostle Paul is waxing poetic and he says, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's activity, God's Spirit in your life is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That's the kind of person I want to be. Because a connection with God makes us more emotionally healthy people. There's another verse where Again, Paul is waxing poetic. It's the end of one of his letters. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And often there are people who quote that verse to talk about how mighty we are. I heard a guy one time in a prayer meeting I was attending say, you know, he felt like someone had given him a prophetic word that was a word that they thought was from God, almost like the, the, the sense that Ray got. And he was going to prosper and be very rich. And then he quoted that verse and he said, and I know I can do it because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The interesting thing about the context of that verse is Paul is talking about suffering. And Paul says, no matter how bad it gets, I can do it. 
no matter how stressed I get, no matter how depressed I get, because Christ is in me, I can do it. I can maintain, I can be faithful, and I can thrive. That's why we have these conversations. It keeps us soft toward him, and it reminds us. Today, we're going to talk about grief. Now, this is something that all of us, if you're on planet Earth, you either are experiencing or you have experienced. So how do we deal with grief? And as with all of these topics, let's also remind ourselves, this isn't an easy one, two, three-step process, and please forgive me if at any point I've communicated that it is easy. But we do have some helpful hints, some handholds. This morning we're going to call them stepping stones that will help us do grief well, to do grief good. And there are some processes, there are some stepping stones, not meant to be taken in any order, but they will connect us to eventually emotional health and brightness and life and even joy. We start this morning by just a contemplation of one of Paul's letters. He's writing to a group of Christians in this ancient city, Thessalonica. And in the second letter that he's written to these folks, in the fourth chapter, he ends up talking to them about friends that they've had who have died. And these folks are so into Jesus and what they've seen God do. They didn't think, you know, they thought the whole the history was going to come to an end at any point. So they were surprised when people started dying. Friends of theirs started dying. And they, their question is, what's up, Paul? You know, we thought Jesus was going to come and just kind of take over. And we were all just going to be glorified and go to the next level, spiritually and physically even. And Paul says, no, no, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who've fallen asleep, or to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Because we have hope. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us get in touch with the hope that's ours, the wellspring, the storehouse of hope that we have because our life is in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's dial through this quickly. I'm going to offer six stepping stones on the path of good grief this morning, if we can. There were a lot of resources that I used for this, a lot of counselors, a lot of books. And I'm going to especially be referring to a a couple of books that I'll commend, although I'm going to give you a list of resources in a minute. I'll put it on the website. You don't need to write them all down if you want to do some more reading about this. But I'm going to especially be kind of taking from and uh, referring to a book called Good Grief. It's by a guy who was a professor in the medical school and the divinity school at the University of Chicago in the 60s, and he wrote a book that became kind of seminal in the chaplaincy industry and helping people deal with grief. It's called Good Grief. And then another one is by one of my favorite Christian counselors, a guy named Norman Wright. It's called Experiencing Grief. So this morning, six stepping stones that will help us move through the process of grief well, to do good grief. Number one, recognize grief. The first step is to recognize grief. You'll get why I'm highlighting that in just a second. Grief is usually experienced as an emotional wave, and you know this if you've gone through a period of grief. It comes and goes. It's not constant. It's not predictable. It's probably triggered by a memory of an experience or a time or a place, and it can be powerfully disorienting. In fact, disorientation may be a sign that what you're experiencing is grief. In the early stages of grief, it's akin to a shock. And you've heard that before about grief. Dr. Granger Westberg calls it a temporary anesthesia. 
He says this shock can be a very helpful thing since we're not able to deal with the completeness of what's happened and experience it all at once. Later, this disorientation can feel like a loss of ourselves. We can't think straight. One of Westberg's patients claims that he spent all of his time just staring at people's shoes. You may be a very decisive person, and then all of a sudden you find yourself not able to make the simplest of decisions. You can't act. You feel completely apathetic. C.S. Lewis called this the laziness of grief. You may be unable to get going. You don't respond like yourself. You don't even feel like yourself. In fact, grief triggers an emotional matrix. Really, you know, we can talk about grief as a how we feel, but grief is really a process. And that process is wrapped up in lots of emotions. There's, of course, there's deep sadness, there's, there's anger, there's sometimes guilt. Grief is not really an emotion, it is more a process. So we need to know, in recognizing grief, we need to know that grief can be a response to many things. Certainly the death of someone important to us is a clear and clean, and very difficult, but it's at least clean, case of grief. But also, a move can induce grief. Loss of a job, change in a job can induce grief. Divorce or the dissolution of a marriage, the end of a company, the end of a dream. You had an idea, you know, and you invested in it. I I was going to retire when I was 55 and make so much money. And before the recession, some of you felt like you were on track. And then all of a sudden, the empty nest. Some of us have experienced an empty nest, and it can induce grief. It sometimes goes unrecognized because we think of grief as associated with death, but not always. The first stepping stone is recognizing grief. So if you're in a grief cycle, you first have to recognize it. Grief can have physical side effects. Westberg talked about a young couple that had become a patient of his, referred to him by one of the doctors at the University of Chicago Medical Center. He's kind of making up details, I think, but he says they had lived in a small town in Iowa, and it had been their hometown, and life was good, and he had a good job, and they were unable to have children. So they were constantly around nieces and nephews. Every day at lunchtime, the man would come home and have lunch with his wife, and they would even spend a little time in the garden. They had a nice groove to their lives. His company asked him to represent them at a conference in Chicago, and he went to Chicago, and during a presentation, I think, another company was so impressed with him that they offered him a job. And it was a lot more money. So they, as many of us would be wont to do, not considering the totality of our decision and the community and connections that we're leaving, took the job because of course you would. It's going to be much more money. And they moved to Chicago. Well, her life all of a sudden becomes empty. There's no, you know, she had an orbit to her life, uh, nieces and nephews. He comes home every day for lunch, and they have all their meals together. And now all of a sudden, life is completely upset. The schedule is completely changed. And she begins eventually to have tremendous headaches and stress all the time and back problems. They did x-rays on her back and CAT scans of her head and went through a variety of doctors before eventually a medical doctor recommended that she see Westberg. And 
in the process of having conversations with her, Chaplain Westberg recognized that really what was happening to her were physical symptoms related to a grief cycle. So the first stepping stone in the process of good grief is to recognize grief. Let me offer a practical suggestion at the end of each of these stepping stones. And a practical suggestion for you this morning would be read a book about grief. Let me give you some resources. Now, this will help you even as you deal with other people in their grief, but it may also help you recognize some grief processes in your own life that have been stunted or that haven't been worked through well because you didn't even recognize it as grief. Again, I'll put these up on the website, but run through some of these real quickly. Grieving the loss of someone you love. Another book might be When Children Grieve. Journaling Your December Grief. I thought that was a fascinating one because the holidays are often such a poignant time for people who are experiencing grief. No Time for Goodbyes, Holding On to Hope, uh, Losing a Parent, because for many of us that's maybe our first experience with grief and the death of a loved one. Healing After the Suicide of a Loved One, Good Grief, the book I referenced, and Experiencing Grief by H. Norman Wright. Just grab a book about grief and read it. Often these books, they're helpful and they tend to be short, easy reads. So that's a Good thing about reading a book about grief. Second stepping stone in doing grief well or in good grief would be understand the process of grief. So recognize that you are grieving and then try to understand some of the process about grief so you'll know a little of what you're going through. It is a slow, inevitable, and natural process. You will do it well or you will do it badly, but you will do it. If you experience loss of some kind, you will enter into a grieving process, a grieving cycle. We want to speed it up, no doubt, but we cannot. We can do it well and make it through stronger, or we can do it poorly and make it through with a limp. But it's a slow, inevitable process. Now, you don't need to remember all this. You can look it up later. But in her 1969 book on death and dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross identified five stages of grief. This is interesting to think about. Again, no test on this. And there are other authors who have elaborated. This guy who wrote Good Grief, he identifies ten stages of grief, which are really just elaborations of Kubler-Ross's five stages. There's another author I saw that uh, identifies seven stages of grief. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, this is maybe even where you've heard the phrase from, the stages of grief from the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross book. So her five stages of grief are, and I'll give this summary real quick, one, denial wherein the survivor imagines a false, preferable reality. We can't get our mind around what's happened. Second, anger. When the individual recognizes that denial cannot continue, they become frustrated, especially at those closest to them. Certain psychological responses of a person undergoing this phase would be, why me? It's not fair. How can this be happening to me? Uh, Who's to blame? Why would God let this happen? Third would be bargaining, which involves the hope that the individual can avoid the cause of grief. This would be especially true, I think, for those of us who experience the grief of a shattered dream and life has just not turned out the way we hope. Usually the negotiation for an extended life or for a different life is made with a higher power in exchange for a reformed lifestyle. I'm just going to be really good. Other times they'll use anything valuable against another human to extend or prolong life or to make their life a different way. People facing less serious trauma can bargain or seek compromise. 
fourth depression. I'm so sad. Why bother with anything? I'm going to die soon, so what's the point? I miss my loved one. Why go on? In this state, the individual may become silent, refuse visitors, and spend much of the time mournful and sullen. You know, in the ancient Near East, in the culture of Jesus, they used to wear black for a year. And I think that's a helpful process. It lets people around you know, I'm grieving. For those who have no mercy in their lives, they can give you a wide berth. (laughs) And for those of you who are very caring, you know to go to this person and say, I'm so sorry, tell me what happened. But we don't do that in 21st century America. As quickly as we can, we go, 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 and often we truncate the process of grief in our lives. Finally, there's acceptance. It's going to be okay. I can fight it. I may as well prepare for it. In this last stage, individuals embrace mortality, their own inevitable future, or what's happened as a result of the death of a dream. People dying may precede the survivors in this state. The person dying, in other words, sometimes get to this sooner than the people around them. The point here is not to memorize these stages. In fact, different authors, as I said, have described them differently. The point is to recognize that grief is a natural process and that it involves fairly predictable steps and stages. The stages don't always appear in the same order, and they look different on different people, but for all of us, they flow in a process that we can recognize. Listen, Scripture does not give us a step-by-step guide for navigating these stages. Again, that's not the point. Instead, what I think we find in the Bible is like a living acknowledgement of this process. It would take too long today to find a story or a psalm reflective of every part of the process of grief, but they're there. The Bible is honest with us about this process because it's inevitable, and so Scripture presents us with models. That's what people who are connected to Christ are empowered to do. We are empowered to deal with our grief healthily. And we'll be helped in this effort if we, first of all, recognize it and, secondly, understand the process. So let me give you a practical step for this stepping stone. Go to a support group or begin to talk to your small group about your grief. Bring it up. They're not tired of hearing it. You need support. You need to begin the process. The rails of the process of grief are greased as you find support and and share this with others. Third stepping stone in doing good grief is to allow for our grief, to give it space. You've got to let yourself grieve. We must not try to truncate our grief or stun it or cut it off. Norman Wright puts it like this, whenever there's a loss, there will be grief. But some do not grieve or mourn well, he says. Some make a choice not to express all the feelings inside so their grief is accumulated. Saving it won't lessen its pain. It will only intensify it. Silence covers wounds before the cleansing has occurred. The result will be an emotional infection. I'm going to read that again. Silence covers wounds before the cleansing has occurred. The result will be an emotional infection. This guy, Westbird, actually is the one who identified ten stages of grief. He calls his second stage the expression of emotion. He warns his readers against trying to contain their emotions. Emotional expression is a critical part of the grieving process. So no matter whether you're a man and men don't cry, or that's not the way we do it in my family, or I don't have time for this, or I don't want to feel all that sadness, all of that pushes that emotional expression down and away, and it will resurface in some other way. So why? Why go through the trouble? Why allow for the heartache? Norman Wright has a chapter 
that he calls why grief. He identifies three reasons for grief. Let me quote from Norman Wright, so stay with me. Through grief, you express your feelings about your loss and you invite others to walk with you, number one. Number two, through grief, you express your protest at the loss as well as your desire to change what happened and have it not be true. This is a normal response. And third, through grief, you express the effects you have experienced from the devastating impact of the loss. Through grief, you can experience God in a new way that will change your life. And then he quotes Job. As Job said, my ears had heard of you, but now... My eyes have seen you. Obvious, but grief is a natural process that you and I need to allow. Let me give you a practical way to work through this step. Find a way to memorialize the person or the experience or whatever you're grieving. I remember when Diane and I moved from Boston. This had been a critically important part of our lives. Our boys were all born in Boston. We were moving from this home that had been our home for 11 years. And a couple of days before we moved, so I don't know why, but I just decided I would walk around the block that we lived on seven times. So I walked around the block, and as I did, I just tried to be in prayer. Thank you, God, for the experiences that we had here. Thank you for what you did in us and in our lives. And, you know, honestly... Through that, we'd been so busy up to that point. (laughs) You know how it is when you move. Through that, walking the block seven times, I found myself getting emotional. And it felt cleansing. It felt good. It felt freeing. Of course, little kids were passing by going, who's that goofy man crying? But some of you know, Jan is not here this morning. He's away for the week. But Jan Zacharias memorializes kind of spiritual breakthroughs in his life with rocks. He has a mantle in his home, and he's got a row of rocks, and each of those rocks represent a time in his life when God did something powerful, and he'll find a rock, literally in the place where he was, or he'll find later a rock that physically, just something about it, reminds him of that experience with God. This is the same kind of thing. Do that for your grief. Listen, some of you have had a hard time. There should be a rock garden somewhere in your home, or There should be a something to memorialize your grief, to allow for it, to give it time to flow. This is why we have funerals, by the way. This is what the world has always done through funerals. This is time for us to just allow for grief. And really, you and I need to begin to think of funerals as the beginning of the grief process, not the end. Fourth, give voice to your questions. In grief, Give voice to your questions. Listen to these questions. Matthew 27, 46, this is Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 10, 1, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, 1 and 2, how long, O Lord, will you forget about me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and and every day have sorrow in my heart? Give voice to your questions. God can take it. He's bigger than you and me. Norman Wright talks about how important this is, and he tells us why. Listen to this. You will begin with why questions. Keep asking your questions, because in time, a transformation could occur. One day, your why will turn into what? What can I do to grow through this experience, and how will my life be stronger now? 
He quotes this woman who's the author of one of the other books that uh, I recommended to you. She wrote a poem called Angry at God. I want you to hear this poem. Uh, This is written by uh, Jessica Shaver. I told God I was angry. I thought he'd be surprised. I thought I'd kept hostility quite cleverly disguised. I told the Lord I hate him. I told him that I was hurt. I told him that he isn't fair. He's treated me like dirt. I told God I was angry, but I'm the one surprised. What I've known all along, he said, you've finally realized. At last you've admitted what's really in your heart. Dishonesty, not anger, was keeping us apart. Even when you hate me, I don't stop loving you. Before you can receive that love, you must confess what's true. And telling me the anger you genuinely feel, it loses power over you, permitting me to heal. I told God I was sorry, and he's forgiven me. The truth that I was angry has finally set me free. Wright had a great counselor's suggestion I want to offer as the practical step here. Wright said, at a certain point in your grief process, you may need to write a letter to your grief, or write a letter from your grief to yourself. So write yourself a letter from grief, or you write a letter to your own grief. Give voice to your questions. A fifth stepping stone in working through the process of grief is to to remember, and if you forget everything else, don't forget this. Remember, our connection to God provides us with the context within which grief can and will be healed. Let me say that again. Our connection to God provides us with the context within which grief can and will be healed. I want you to hear a real brief paragraph from 1 John chapter 3. He says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. It's who we are. We're loved by him. It's who we are. And that's what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. Listen to this. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. We don't know what's ultimately going to happen. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's where we're ultimately headed. And then this, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. One of the ways that you and I stay on track with emotional health and emotional maturing is by recognizing the context within which our lives are lived. And history is not a circle that keeps repeating itself. History is a straight line headed in a point, and God is in charge of that history. I read this fascinating account a couple weeks ago. Florence Chadwick, I don't know if you've ever heard that name or this story before. On July 4th in 1952, Florence Chadwick had already become world famous as a long-distance swimmer. She had swum the English Channel between France and England. She was the first woman to do so. So in 1952, she wanted to be the first woman to swim the Catalina Channel from Catalina Island to Palos Verde, California. It's 21 miles, open water pretty much, and often rough water, and may I add, shark infested. And on the day she swam, the water was particularly cold, and the fog was so thick, she often could not see her support boats. So they had little megaphones that uh, they were yelling out to her to encourage her to keep going. She swam 15 hours and 55 minutes. 
and she quit a half a mile from the shore. This was, by the way, on live television in the United States. Later, she told a reporter, if I could have seen land, I could have made it. We know where land is. We know where we're headed. We know where the shore is. And that context gives us the capacity to grieve good. We can make it because we know where we're headed. Two months later, she didn't make it. When we know the end, it makes all the difference. Hence, the Apostle Paul, right, in 1 Thessalonians 4, look, I don't want you to be confused or ignorant about your friends who died. I don't want you to grieve like everybody else. They have no hope. But you, you have hope. Remember, our connection with God provides us with the context within which grief can and will be healed. This remembrance will help you hang on to hope, which will grease the skids of grief and prevent you from getting stuck or eventually not doing it well and walking with a limp. There are people who grieve badly, and they end up limping for the rest of their lives. Some of us are in that process. We missed a grieving process. We cut off a grieving cycle. We didn't do it well. We didn't give it space. Getting stuck can eventuate in depression, where you can get hung for a long time. But remembering the context, remembering the end will give us hope and will help us navigate the waters of grief and will give us the capacity to let it flow. So here's the practical step for us. Engage in prayer. Get prayed for and pray. I want to say this morning, I am really proud of the people. That's a weird thing for me to say, I know. But I'm really proud of the people. It takes some bravery to do this. They came up last week down here to be uh, prayed for, for depression. And if you did not get a chance to be prayed for, I want you to be selfish. When the service ends today, I want you to run down here and get prayed for. If you're in a grief cycle or this morning, you might be recognizing it for the first time. That's what's going on with me. You know, I lost that relationship. My job ended. Things have completely changed. My life has not turned out at all like I thought it would turn out. And what I've been going through is a grief process that I've never recognized and I've never given it voice. Run down here and get prayer this morning. And pray yourself. Uh, Finally, a sixth stepping stone in dealing with grief and doing good grief is, well, first, let's look at the whole list. First, recognize your grief. Second, understand the process of grief. Third, allow for your grief. Fourth, give voice to your questions. Fifth, remember your connection to God provides you with the context within which grief can and will be healed. Your connection to God and the future. It gives us hope. And finally, be a minister to others. This will help your grief, and it's the way God designed it. I want to give you a sense of what recovery looks like. Norman Wright the counselor who wrote Experiencing Grief, just gives a laundry list of things that will be happening, what's going on in your life when grief begins to lift from you. Listen to this. You you may recognize some of this, those of you who have done, especially those of you who have done good grief work in your life. You're able to handle the finality of the situation. You can review pleasant as well as unpleasant memories. You can choose to spend time alone and enjoy it. You can go somewhere without crying most of the time. 
You're beginning to look forward to holidays. In the case of death, you're able to listen to your loved one's favorite music without pain. Isn't that an interesting one? You can sit through a worship service without crying. You can laugh at a joke. Your eating, sleeping, and exercise patterns are returning to what they were before. You can concentrate on reading or watching television. You're no longer overly tired. You can find something to be thankful for. You're patient with yourself when you experience a grief spasm. You're beginning to discover new personal growth from your grief. You're able to help others in a similar situation. You're able to help others in a similar situation. Once you're on the other side of grief, you and I have a deposit in our life that God intends for us to offer others. Listen again to the words of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians, he starts off his second letter to this group of Christians by saying this in chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what Paul has gone through that inspires this. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Be open to God to use your grief for others and be honest about it. Really, the practical step is built in, isn't it? Be open for God to use your grief for others and be honest about it. For those of you who may be in a grieving cycle today and for others of us who are facing it or have gone through it, I'm going to wrap this up this morning by reading a poem that Norman Wright, this is his book, Experiencing Grief. He includes this poem from, again, one of the authors that was a a resource if you want to read a book. I thought this was a profound study, case study, and just how grief works in us. It's called It Wasn't You. I thought I saw you today standing there in the checkout line, just out of reach. I started to call your name, but I stopped. My mind said it wasn't you. Couldn't be you. My heart said otherwise, vehemently. I was embarrassed by the tears that sprang, unbidden to wash away my disappointment. I wrestled like Jacob with the angel until I had conquered once more my grief. The struggle left me feeling out of joint. The world slipped away as I left the store. It was only me and my grief, not you. Never again a you. Finally, I grabbed my grief by the neck, shouting, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now look for God to bless you through your grief. And then, because of your grief, look to be a blessing to others. That's where it's headed. You being a blessing to others. Let's pray. Lord, I feel like we've been a little dry today about the most tender part of our hearts. The place and the places where we have been the most profoundly pricked. So we give you just a moment. And Father, I ask that you would uh, massage your truth and your comfort into the soft places in our heart and in our lives. Oh Lord, some of us have not recognized that, and we've certainly felt profound disappointment. We haven't recognized that it was grief that we were dealing with. So we haven't really given it voice. We haven't given it time. We haven't given it space. We may have even encouraged ourselves, come on, get going, and 
we don't seem to be able to do it. So this morning, for those of us who are in that place, God, we feel called to throw ourselves on your mercy and your goodness. We recognize you're so good and you love us. So we throw ourselves on that this morning. We also recognize, Lord, that we live on a planet that because uh, we've been invaded by a spiritual enemy, and that's what we believe. We live on a planet that conspires against our genuine joy sometimes. And parents die, and children die. And dreams die, and marriages die, and companies die, and finances fail. Goodness, we need your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grieve well so that we could be a comfort to others, so that we could be a minister and a comfort to others in their grief. Because you offer us something, so this morning we say yes to it. And we know you don't intend for that to stop with us, you intend for it to flow. We bring our questions to you this morning. Why did they have to die? Why am I still single? Why is my marriage not what I hoped? Why are my children the way they are? Or even if those questions don't have answers, we recognize you're the answer. So we give voice to our questions and we lean into you. And also, Lord, we remember the context within which all of this happens the straight line of your story. And we rejoice this morning because uh, not always, but once in a while, we've seen the shore and we know it's there. So we feel today the hope we can keep swimming. Lord, I pray finally that you would pour out your spirit on Gateway and on us as individuals and families. God, that you would enable us to Live through depression victoriously, victoriously. God, that you would enable us to not sin in our anger. That you would enable us, fill us and equip us to experience peace and not be burdened by anxiety and stress. Finally, Lord, that we could grieve well. That we'd be clean. That we wouldn't walk with a limp. 